Hi, I'm Mackenzie Bagan, and this is 112BK. Coming up, the owner of The Strand's 18 Miles of Books worries they might be tied up in 18 Miles of Red Tape if her building is slated for landmark status. While certainly there's a layer of bureaucracy there, and nobody loves bureaucracy, um, it's usually pretty navigable. um, And uh, I think the benefits far outweigh the costs. And then we'll engage in some trash talk with two designers of what might be New York City's next municipal refuse receptacle. We did some sessions that were like more gorilla, I guess I'd call it, where we're, you know, just observing from the street from afar, both sanitation workers and just pedestrians interacting with it, looking through their decision-making process to like, what do I, You know, what happens when this thing's overfilling? Like, how do I deal with this? Where do I put it? Here at 112BK, people say to us all the time, Please, enough with the segments about the members of Van Halen, not to mention David Lee Roth's member. Can we get more stories about city agencies? We've heard you loud and clear, and our next guests are here to talk about a legit dramatic fight over landmarking in Greenwich Village. Landmarking is often seen as a way of protecting important buildings, but who gets to decide what's worth preserving and what's not? And what happens when the owner of the building doesn't want it to be landmarked? That's the current state of affairs over at The Strand, the much-loved bookstore that happens to be housed in a very beautiful historic building. To tell us more, we're joined by Simeon Bankoff, Executive Director of the Historic Districts Council. Welcome back to Brick House. Thanks. And Andrew Berman, Executive Director of the Greenwich Village Society for Historic Preservation. Great to have you here. Thanks for having me. So, Andrew, maybe you can tell us a little bit about um, this current issue, about how there are seven buildings that are set to be landmarked. Sure. Yeah, so uh, the city has picked uh, seven buildings on Broadway, south of Union Square, to consider for landmark designation. Um, they've been heard by the Landmarks Preservation Commission already in a public hearing. Um, and uh, there's going to be another hearing uh, specifically on the building housing the Strand uh, coming up. Um, the Strand is the only one that's opposing designation. And, uh, you know, there's a, there's a lot of different sides to this uh, story. Uh, one is from our perspective that we really wish the city would actually be looking much more broadly than these seven buildings. Um, that whole area is under a tremendous amount of pressure. Um, We're having a lot of historic buildings torn down and replaced by office towers and hotels and condo high-rises. And um, the Strand has definitely been pushing back on that, um, saying that uh, landmarking would harm their business. But certainly from our experience, uh, businesses tend to thrive in historic districts and landmark districts. Um, And while certainly there's a layer of bureaucracy there, and nobody loves bureaucracy, um, it's usually pretty navigable. um, And uh, I think the benefits far outweigh the costs. And Simeon, do you agree? Do you think that these buildings should be landmarked? Oh, yeah, uh, very much so. The uh, I also agree with, with Andrew that the city is not doing enough in the area, that that whole stretch of Lower Broadway is a very interesting cultural history involving the labor movement, involving manufacturing history that people don't really know about, and the buildings are still there. So in addition to being aesthetically beautiful and historically important, they also have that sort of a fission of cultural history that will be forgotten when they're all replaced by enormous gleaming towers. With regard to the Strand itself, uh, the building is very not is is a lovely building by a interesting architect uh, named Berkmeyer, uh, who was an enormous enthusiast for 
uh, steel construction and sky, skyscraper development, actually. He is was active in New York, but the only other landmark building that he had done is a church up in East Tremont in the Bronx, as I recall. And how were these seven buildings selected, Andrew? So that's an interesting question. You know, this, uh, as with everything in New York, um, there's a complicated backstory. So the mayor uh, pushed through recently this plan to get a rezoning on 14th Street, just a block or so away from this building, um, for something called a tech hub, this very large development that's probably going to spur even more of this sort of office building development in this area uh, south of of Union Square, where the Strand Building is. My organization, HDC, um, and many others in the community said, look, if you want to put the tech hub on 14th Street, we can live with that on 14th Street, but we want the neighborhood to the south to be protected and not overwhelmed by a wave of tech-related development that would come along with it. And so we put forward uh, proposals to protect the neighborhood either through landmarking or zoning or both. Um, we identified close to 200 buildings in the neighborhood that we thought were worthy of landmark or historic district protection. 200? 200, But we're yes. talking about seven. So how did we... So the city cherry-picked seven buildings out of those 200. We didn't pick them. We didn't even know which seven they were um, until they were publicly announced. And somewhat ironically, they picked the seven buildings that were least endangered and probably not likely to be endangered anytime soon. That doesn't make them any less worthy of designation, um, but they're certainly not the place where we think they should be starting this process. So even as preservationists, we have a, a beef with the way that the city has gone about this. I see. So you think that it's um, misplaced priorities and that they went for kind of low-hanging fruit. I guess buildings that were are not in danger of being exactly. torn down. Exactly. Anyway. Very true. Our offices are actually in that general area, so we walk through regularly to you know use the post office and whatnot. You can't walk down a block in that particular neighborhood without seeing enormous amounts of construction, be it buildings being torn down, buildings, new buildings being built up right across from Webster Hall, for example. We joined Greenwich Village Society in protesting the demolition of three affordable housing tenements, uh, which were being demolished for a moxie hotel that are, is specifically being uh, targeted at uh, young, affluent travelers. And so. tenements are so passe. Right. Nobody wants to stay no there. No one wants to stay so there. So I think mm. that this gets at the heart of things a little bit, which is that historic designation often refers to the edifice of the building itself mm -hmm. instead of what happened inside the building. And that we're seeing that these seven buildings are sort of beautiful, very expensive, um, aesthetically pleasing pieces of architecture, whereas perhaps these tenements, because they are less beautiful are not being protected? Would you say that's true, Andrew? Yeah, I mean, we've we pushed for protection of all types of historic buildings. And, you know, uh, it's true that landmark designation for better and worse really only applies to kind of the aesthetics of the building. Um, that doesn't mean that nothing ever gets to change. So certainly we would be the last people to say that the way to protect or preserve small businesses is through landmarking, although it can sometimes be somewhat helpful in, in a more yeah. indirect kind of 
of way. But the flip side is the the landmarking uh, certainly is does not harm small businesses. The Landmarks Preservation Commission is very conscious of the fact that buildings are living, breathing entities with businesses inside of them or residences um, that need to grow and change. Um, and so certainly uh, we believe that the Strand would continue to be able to thrive under uh, landmark designation. All of that said, we would prefer that the city took a different approach, step back, look more broadly at this neighborhood, and prioritize those buildings that were most endangered. Right. And just to emphasize, uh, the Landmarks Preservation Commission only has the power to regulate architecture. That is, they, they, they can't regulate use. That's not within their abilities. But they have tried very successfully by their own rights for many years to make it as easy as possible for businesses and residents and applicants to get through the permitting process. We just had a big multi-year conversation about uh, streamlining their rules to allow for approvals. And in fact, in the latest mayor's management report, the the stuff that happens on the inside that the Landmarks Commission doesn't really consider anyway is generally permitted within less than one business day, given all the if you know, if you go, if the applicant has all of their forms correctly. So for the Strand to say, oh my goodness, this is the worst thing ever. This is going to like knock us out of business because this is so much paperwork and t- will take so long and will be so onerous doesn't really make a lot of sense. One of the concerns, for example, that we've heard voiced is that the Strand wishes to create a cafe. Now, the fact of the matter is getting the health department in to give them all the food handling licenses and sign off on all of that stuff is a lot more onerous than getting the Landmarks Preservation Commission to allow for a sign that says cafe this way. So, sticking with you, Simeon, what is the owner, um, Nancy Bass Wyden's, mm-hmm. a- objection then if this landmarking would only apply to the exterior of the building and not the changes on the inside? What What is her beef with it? I do not, cannot see into her heart. <laughs> so, <laughs> Andrew, I honestly, can you see into her heart? Do you know? I, I mean, I think Nancy, who I know very well and who, uh, you know, I, I admire in terms of, uh, you know, what she's done with uh, an iconic New York City business, is really the best person to kind of defend that. But I think we would both agree from our experience working for years with property owners and, and businesses located in landmark districts that, again, it is an, an, it is an additional layer of bureaucracy. Nobody loves to have another person that you have to go to to sort of file a paper with, but it is not at all very onerous at all, especially for businesses, given that for the most part, what goes on the inside is not regulated. And even on the outside, 95% of applications are considered minor enough that they don't have to go through the sort of full public process. It's really just approved at staff level. Nancy Bass-Wyden is also married to um, a senator. Right, from um, Oregon. Right, from Oregon, which I, I, I mean, good for them for making that long-distance relationship work for one. That's amazing. Uh, yeah, That's really. an accomplishment in and of itself. Um, but because of that, we also have access to their tax returns. Mm-hmm. So we know that in 2014, uh, there were reported earnings of $1 million from the bookstore. And I know that a lot of Nancy Bass-Wyden's uh, concerns about this are, you know, that the strand is barely holding on as a small business. And um, one of our reporters interviewed her and she said that, you know, she might have to look at trimming staff if if this went through because the Strand was not making making money. Um, so this seems to be a situation where she is in conflict with the other, the other building owners who do want to see this landmark designation passed. Mm-hmm. 
This so, is her contention that this mm-hmm. is going to cost her more money. There's actually no provable, demonstrable way mm-hmm. that she can say this is going to cost more money. But I guess also I wonder if this is an argument in addition for the building to be landmarked, if we need something like how San Francisco has a, oh, the a legacy. legacy. Yes. Oh, yes, we do. Sure. And we, we, we and other <laughs> preservationists and other concerned New Yorkers have been uh, working on that, actually. We've yeah. been a forceful advocate of something called the Small Business Job Survival Act. Um, we've been looking at trying to promote legislation in New York City that would allow neighborhoods who want it to limit the proliferation of chain stores so that they don't have that kind of unfair competition from the big corporate giants. So we are absolutely looking at the ways of addressing the concerns of small businesses. So we're not just interested and concerned with preserving buildings, but with the businesses that occupy them, the theaters, the um, music halls, uh, you know, all of those things that make a community and New York what we really love. You know, it's interesting. The Strand is the sort of rare case where the business actually owns the building that they're in. Right. So they have that wonderful leg up already. I think in some ways that's part of why Nancy is so concerned because she's actually the last landlord in this case. Uh, it, it, it's a little bit different than your average small business um, situation. But even for whether you're the landlord or the business, landmarking, I think, has shown over the 50, almost 55 years that it's been around now, that the, the benefits far outweigh any cost for both the individuals who are, are in the designated building and for the city as a whole, where it's managed to, in a, in a rapidly, rapidly changing city, hold on to the s- small piece of what uh, many New Yorkers value most dearly, 3.5% of the city that's landmarked, but it's the most historic parts of our, our city. I'm curious about how much landmarking a building can do to try and preserve the the culture inside, you know, since we don't mm-hmm. have like a legacy business preservation. Yet, right, yet, which right. I hope we do. Right. Um, for example, like the Stonewall Inn. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So, There's uh, nothing that would prevent like Guy Fieri from opening a restaurant inside, but what would he be prevented from? Well, half the Stonewall Inn at the moment is still the uh, a nail salon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, a, it's a perfect example, though, and it's one we actually spearheaded the drive to get the Stonewall landmark. And we worked with advocates on a kind of parallel track, which is that, OK, we want to save the building because obviously there's no way that the Stonewall is going to stay there if the building is demolished. And by the way, keep in mind, there was no Stonewall for about 20 years. This is actually a new Stonewall that took over the, the space historically where a, a Stonewall bar had been located. But we've been working with advocates to try to come up with a way to ensure that something like the Stonewall stays there in perpetuity, because you're right, if it becomes a Starbucks or a bagel shop or a Duane Reed, you know, you've still lost something incredibly important. So we need to be looking at all of those things. Currently, we have landmarking, which is this mechanism rarely used, again, about 3% of New York, to protect a building. We don't have similar mechanisms to protect businesses or other kinds of institutions. We and many others are working to try to make that or something like that happen as well. Both are needed. The answer is to do more, not to do less. And this is sort of the the holistic approach that you've been advocating mm-hmm. for. Absolutely. Is that correct? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and this this one is a little bit in the weeds, but going back to the Strand Building, there's something about the, the air rights or how tall the building... The building is currently overbuilt under its current zoning, which means that were the building to be demolished, the as-of-right building that could be built you know, in its stead would be smaller. Keep in mind, however, that's only under its current zoning. Zoning changes. Zoning changes 
all the time. And there's nothing to say that in 20 years from now, the zoning might not change because the tech hub has been so spectacularly successful that we're uh, building 40-story buildings around there, all with heliports or teleporters or whatever they choose to put in there. And then it could potentially be a development site. That happened in East Midtown, actually. Uh, when you see uh, 270 Park Avenue, the the Chase the Chase building, which is 55 stories, they're demolishing it because they got upzoned and they can now build it up to 70 stories. Wow. So they're going to demol. It's going to be the largest planned demolition of a building in human history, in order to gain another 15 stories. Is there an example of a neighborhood, or perhaps another city even, that has really gotten its landmarking right, um, and in doing so has managed to preserve the the heritage and the feeling of a neighborhood from tech hubs coming in or mm-hmm. what have you? Sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's something that cities throughout the country and across the world are grappling with right now because you want to strike a balance. You want to hold on to what makes your sense of place distinctive and what makes your city different from every other place, but you want to allow change and you want to allow growth. And how do you do that? Um, I certainly think that preservation can be a very important part of that. Neither of our groups or I think anyone in New York City advocates for um, preserving an amber the entire city. And even in our most historic neighborhoods, whether it's Greenwich Village or Park Slope or Jackson Heights or on the Grand Concourse, uh, where there is landmarking, um, change is allowed. Buildings in special cases are allowed to be demolished. Buildings that are supposed to be preserved, changes are allowed to be made to them. So, you know, I think we are striking that balance here in New York. I think we need to do a lot more to help support small businesses and other kinds of institutions that make the city special uh, in the way that it is. But, you know, New York is undergoing a tremendous building boom uh, at the moment, but we also have the most robust landmark program of any city in the country. So we're actually kind of tops in both respects, um, and I think that's something we can be very proud of. If you look back um, in the 1980s, the Broadway theater pro- Broadway theaters were dark. There was a, a distinct possibility, and in fact, plans to redevelop Times Square and that area and get rid of most of the theaters. They were dark. There were these big old white elephants that were leaky and just costing money to keep, and no one wanted them. And in fact, the Broadway theater owners, there were three of them at the time, were attempting to to demolish some of them, and and we lost two. There was a pushback. There was, uh, and the Landmarks Commission and the city came in and said that theater is an incredibly important part of New York City. And these need to be landmarked, and we need to do everything we can do to try to get more theater in New York. Mm-hmm. And there were lawsuits and black back and forth. But at the end of the day, more than a dozen theater, I think it was 16 theaters, were actually designated as landmarks. So they were like, all right, we're going to keep these buildings. And now, 25 years later, 30 years later, Broadway is a multi-billion dollar business. Attracting a huge number of tourists, um, generating lots of income, adding incredibly to the cultural vitality of New York. So there are are definitely ways of, of doing this, and preservation is an incredibly important piece of that. Great. Well, Simeon, Andrew, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having us. Our next segment is Absolute Garbage. 
Last year, the New York City Department of Sanitation launched a competition called Better Bin, putting out an open call for designers to rethink the iconic green metal trash cans that grace New York City street corners. Three finalists were chosen, and one of those teams joins us today to talk trash. We want to welcome two designers who can honestly say, been down so long, it looks like up to us. From Group Project, <laughs> Colin Kelly, welcome to Woman 2 bk and Rick Kleinman, thanks so much for being here. Happy to be thanks here. Thanks for having us. So uh, tell us about the impetus for the, for the competition. Why do we need to redesign the existing trash bins? Uh, Britt? Well, New York City, the green trash bins have actually been around since the 1930s. So it's been a long time since there's been a refresh to these bins. And, you know, if anyone's been walking around New York City streets, I think all of us could point out some initial things that are immediately wrong. You know, they get overflowed really easily. Um, they get banged up really easily and don't look super great on the street side. And like the one of the big things is they're super super heavy so for sanitation workers it's actually a huge like request to be able to have them service almost 300 bins in one work shift and each bin currently weighs about 30 pounds so it's a lot of weight to do 300 bins of 30 pounds that's just empty so when you put trash in it it can weigh up to 60 pounds full of trash. And so you can just imagine kind of the stress that puts on the sanitation workers. So Colin, some of the things that you had to solve for were uh, the weightiness, as Britt was saying. Um, what were some of the other challenges or guidelines? Yeah, so we had to, you know, we it needs to be usable by a sanitation worker. So there's a lot of kind of ergonomic considerations. I think we, we had to think of you know, how you pick it up and, and move it around. There's something about like the size of the holes as well, yeah. right? Yeah, so there's a, a big rat problem with yeah, the, with the current is. cans now. There is so, a problem. Um, you know, there's some restrictions and some thought we put into about like perforation and hole size so that, you know, water can easily drain out, liquids can drain out, but rats can't get in. Got it. And also I know that there's some like safety and terrorism concerns as well that you need to be able to like see what's inside. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. So the there's some requirements that, you know, when uh, there's a big event, New Year's Eve or something like that in Times Square, they, they can easily be moved um, by NYPD and Department of Sanitation. So there's no, yeah, no threat of any misuse. Got it. So Jessica Lacks from the Van Allen Institute, which is one of the co-sponsors of this competition, mm -hmm. um, she said, these three teams rose to the top because they understand how the litter baskets are used. And she's referring to the three finalist teams, uh, of which you are one of them. Would you say that you understand how litter baskets are used? And was there a process that you had to go through, like a design research process to really figure out how people use trash cans? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think we we did a lot of upfront research when this project started. I mean, I think we're all four of us as part of the team or designers that really always start with looking at user interface. And so, I mean, we got some security cam footage from a local business hardware store that we actually could just watch people using the trash can. Oh, wow, exciting um, Friday night viewing. <laughs> yeah, it was really great. And, you know, a couple of big things we really noticed. Um, we also watched sanitation workers actually use the trash can. So we followed some around, took video, t you know, took pictures um, and kind of casually watched that. But from the security did cam. This, did you get any questions from the sanitation workers? Like, who are you guys? <laughs> Why are you taping me? It was more stealth than that. Yeah, okay. so we <laughs> did, were in disguise. We did, yeah. we did some sessions that were like more gorilla, I guess I'd call it, where we're, you know, just observing from the street from afar, both sanitation workers and just pedestrians interacting mm -hmm. with it. 
looking through their decision-making process to like, what do I, you know, what happens when this thing's overfilling? Like, how do I deal with this? Where do I put it? Also just like looking at what trash goes in it, you know, and if some bins are recycling, some are, some are refuse, like, you know, why are things being misused and mis, you know, put in the wrong place, basically? Britt mentioned the security cam footage. That was really helpful because it was basically like we were, you know, we had a, a hardware store owner in Brooklyn who gave us three days worth of footage. And we were able to really see how our, our, our term for it is called foragers, but basically they're, they're folks that kind of go through and go through the recycling bins and pick up the bottles for uh, to return themselves um, and we kind of saw how they they dig into the, the dig into the cans and and pull out the liners and and use them in, in a certain way so we we put a lot of thought into the design of ours that allowed people to easily kind of get inside and and take recyclables out forage through it yeah I think one of the big things we really saw and noticed a lot was just trash cans completely disassembled on the street so I mean we'd walk around and other than the green bin that this project is addressing, if you walk around New York City, you see a lot of different shapes and types of trash cans. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And essentially anything other than the green bin, you know, is somehow privately sponsored or is sponsored by, you know, the Myrtle Avenue Business Association or something like that that sponsors to get a different bin in there. There's a couple problems that that initiates is one there's a really lack of consistency on the street so from a from a user point of view if you're a pedestrian and you see one trash can on one street and another trash can on another street like the ability to learn as you go throughout New York City of what trash can does what where do I put recycling where do I put refuse there's no consistency from a design point of view so that's one thing we really noticed by observation and then the other thing is a lot of the we'll call them fancier trash cans other than the green mesh ones often are not put back correctly, either from, you know, sometimes sanitation workers or people who are digging through the trash. Um, you know, if there's a door they have to hinge open, they won't put back a certain element and basically ends up trash just sort of everywhere. So all those elements really informed our final design. I love that you're thinking about this almost as if you're an alien coming from another planet and you're like, <laughs> mm -hmm. I have an empty coffee cup in my hand. What do I do with it? Where do I put it? How do yeah. I learn what a trash can is? Um, so tell me a little bit about your trash can design, which is currently being prototyped. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it, it, I think our concept, and it differentiates us from the others, our concept really is a more of a modular approach, I guess I'd say. It consists of kind of two main parts. There's the plastic basket, which is a, a basket that's made from recycled plastics and could easily be ground down and, and recycled itself. And then there's a, a uh, what we call the stand, which is uh, made up of a few different metal components. And the reason why we zoned in early on these two parts is we really thought that the thing that should be going between the street corner and the, and the truck should be something really durable, really light. And that's why we kind of zeroed in on a, a plastic-based material. And then the thing that stays on the street corner, this metal component, is beautiful. You know, it's going to maintain its shape, and it's going to protect the bin while it's, while it's on the corner and won't let it blow over with wind or it would prevent theft and, and things like that. So. so it's a detachable sort of like yeah. two-part design. Exactly, mm -hmm. exactly. And I think the stand really gives the trash can purpose on the sidewalk and it gives it a home we always talk about. So you have this sort of visual marker that you know is consistent across the whole city and it really has a sort of place on that sidewalk corner. Okay. And it also gives a place for the sanitation worker to know where they're putting this plastic 
part that's moving back and forth between the truck, you know, it always goes back to the same location. Yeah. Which mm-hmm. is really nice. One last one last thing is it's purposely designed for scale too. So the there's like many different types of waste streams, organics. Currently it's a single stream recycling, but if that was ever to kind of become more specific, maybe even e-waste down the line, who knows? But our bin can kind of grow to kind of these different scaling opportun- you know, situations in the future. Interesting. So there's the zero waste 2030 plan, and your design could potentially be adapted to sure. also be used for compost or recycling or yep. things like mm-hmm. that. Is that yep. right? Cool. I want to play a little game with you guys, a little trash game. Cool. Um, So these (laughs) trash cans are so iconic and um, actually form the backbone of many unusual New York City anecdotes. So quick quiz. In 2014, uh, New York police officers dumped their latex gloves in a city trash can after visiting the home of a doctor who was infected with what? A doctor infected with <laughs> Ebola. It's Ebola. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, that's, I mean, so New York. That's not a good use, <laughs> not a good use of a trash public can. trash can, no. I would say. I don't think ours is going to be able to do much. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that. that's yeah. up to you to solve for the problem of bio-waste, uh, properly disposed bio-waste. Okay, here's another one. Um, the daughter of what New York City celebrity, known for his Trump trash talk, threw a tantrum when her mother wouldn't allow her to climb into a Union Square garbage can? No idea. <laughs> That is Alec Baldwin's oh, child. Wow. Yes, apparently she threw a 40-minute tantrum wow. when she wasn't allowed to play in the trash can. <laughs> All know, right. it was probably better off. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Listen to your mother. Yeah. Um, okay, this is the last one. According to the Daily Mail, a pedestrian once used a trash can to fend off an enraged commuter wielding a what? I don't know. A subway card? I, I know. <laughs> this is a machete. A machete. Oh I was like, some it's sort of a machete. Sword. Yes. And now knowing what I know about the trash cans, about how heavy they are, this makes yeah. perfect sense. Yeah. That's true. Wow. Yeah. I guess it's like a giant cage. Did you think about that when you were designing machete yours? Proof, about, you know? I mean, it's. I'd say ours it could, could be, be. machete proof. Okay. Yeah. Um, so walk me through what happens next in the competition. So you're currently prototyping, and yeah. then what happens? So we're working on the what each group is working on are 12 full-scale works like and looks like prototypes that will actually live on New York City streets this summer. And then they're going to be used as if they're normal trash cans. They're going to be emptied three times a day and put, they've already told us, put in very high traffic use areas. Do you know where exactly? Nope. That's going to be a surprise for everyone. And the public gets to interact with them as if they're normal trash cans. And there's a panel of judges. And then the sanitation workers um, have a say as well for the final competition. Yeah, Yeah, it seems like they're the people who have to deal with them most yeah. so yes. hopefully their <laughs> hopefully their say is weighted yes yeah. um <laughs> so people can what stay tuned to find out where to see one of your trash cans or the trash cans of the other two finalists and then yeah. uh, go figure out if they can yeah they can throw away trash and there's going to be a, a way like a, a way for the public to give feedback as well i don't we don't exactly know how that's going to happen yeah. but there's going to be some type of polling process for okay. like where the you know, New York City, New Yorkers can give feedback. We'll give, you know, get feedback from okay. sanitation workers. So everybody's going to have a say. And do we know when the winner is announced and then when the 30,000 existing trash cans will be <laughs> replaced with the new design? We haven't been told exactly when the winner is going to be announced, but uh, sometime after the summer. Late summer, yeah. Late summer. All right. 
Very cool. So, uh, oh, tell me, I guess, the name of your of your team, your team name, and how people can see your trash can design. So our team and company is Group Project, and we have an Instagram account at Group Project. There's an no, underscore in there, I think, sir. Underscore group. Yeah, yeah it's Instagram's hard you know. to find the right name. So and underscore group us. project. <laughs> Great. <laughs> um, Brett Collin, thank you so much for joining me today. So Thanks for having us. Thanks. Better Bin is a design competition by the New York City Department of Sanitation, Van Allen Institute, and the Industrial Designer Society of America, the American Institute of Architects, New York. That's the show for today. Please join us next time when I sit down with Jody Patterson to talk about parenting a transgender child. Hope you can join us. Woman to BK is hosted by me, Mackenzie Fagan. It is series produced by Ross Tuttle, also produced by Fred Brown, Shereen Bargi, Isabel Alcantara, Naeem Van, and Emily Bogosian. It is recorded in studio by Clinton Filson Jr., Eric Hogseg, and Antonio M. Rosario. It is post-produced by Alexander Pointzolo, edited by Mira Al-Rahim, and executive produced by Jonathan Leaf, Sasha Mathias, and Aziz Aisham.